Psalm 4 is found on page 448 of your uh, pew Bible. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their, when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. O Lord, we praise you today that you are a light in our salvation. Thank you, God, that you've, you've shown us the path of life, that in your presence is pleasure, or fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at your right hand. God, thank you that your name is a strong tower and the righteous can run into it and be safe. Lord, thank you that you've given us freely your son and that being the case, you will graciously give us all things. Lord, I pray that this time of, of worship, preaching of the word, God, our fellowship would bring glory to your name. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, Lord. Lord, we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It is an honor to be here and a privilege to be standing up here in front of you, to look at God's word together. I must say I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here to share from Psalm 4 what I've been studying, what I'm learning. That's not to say I'm not nervous, but it's to say I am excited. And I'm excited because we're here not because of the words that I have to say and what I have to say about Psalm 4. We're here together examining Psalm 4 to see what the Lord has to say, to see what God spoke through David many, many years ago for his original audience, but that also stands true for us today. So I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to uh, work through this psalm alongside of you and see what the Lord has, has to show us. So let me go ahead and, and open us here in prayer again. Lord, we do come before you, and we ask that your words would be the words that ring true today, and that you would speak to all of us through your word. Lord, allow me to be sensitive to your spirit and sensitive to your word, and to proclaim your gospel through this passage um, as you would have it to be proclaimed. Um, I ask that you, your spirit would work and each one of us convict each one of us of how we might take this passage today and apply it to our daily lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 4, I feel like before we actually jump into the text, I need to give you guys a little bit of a background of what's happening in David's life as the author. I think it can be really helpful 
to see what he's experiencing, where he is in life, what challenges are in his life at the time of this writing. And I think understanding that is going to help us uh, see even better what he's trying to communicate and the peace that he has in confidently waiting on the Lord in this passage. Um, the Psalms are interesting because they're individual uh, poems or songs and not necessarily a narrative or a story that just goes one chapter to the next chapter or like an epistle, a letter. Chapter 2 is the, the beginning or part of a letter and chapter 3 continues on in the letter. But with the Psalms, they're individually written. So we can't necessarily just look at the chapter before, look at the chapter after, and know exactly what's going on. So with this passage specifically, scholars have, have kind of debated where exactly David is, but the consensus that we have on Psalm 4 is that David is being pursued by his enemies. He is in one of his many... Uh, stages in life where he's fleeing for his life from his enemies. And some say that he's fleeing from Saul in this passage, and others would say that he's fleeing from Absalom, his son, who set himself up as king and is now seeking to take his own father, King David's, life. Um, one of the relationships that we see between or with chapter 4 and Absalom actually does come from the previous chapter in Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3 is often called the morning psalm, morning as in the beginning of the day, and chapter 4 is often called the evening psalm. And we've kind of made those connections, scholars have made those connections based on chapter 3, verse 5, where David says, he lay down and slept and then woke again, for the Lord sustained him. David is waking up, the Lord having sustained him through the night and beginning a new day. In Psalm chapter 4, our passage today, the last verse, verse 8, says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In this psalm, we see David at the end of the day laying down to sleep, to, to look for another night's rest, dwelling in God's safety. So that's a common connection that's made between the two chapters. Um, if that is certain, then he's fleeing from Absalom. But I think no matter what, we are looking at a psalm where David is in flight. He is uh, being pursued by his enemies in this present time in his life. So let's take a look at Psalm 4. Verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David, in this first verse, is leading out with a confident prayer to God. He offers it confidently before the Lord. And what's interesting about calling God his righteousness, the God of his righteousness, is that David is recognizing God as the vindicator of his right. David is in a position of being slandered and being brought low. His honor is being turned into shame, as we'll see in verse 2. 
And David's first action is to cry out to the Lord with confidence, knowing that the Lord will hear. You have given me relief when I was in distress, is the following line. In this prayer to the Lord, David remembers and he reminds God of the times in the past that, David, that God has answered David's prayers for deliverance, for safety, and for relief. In fact, calling out in confident prayer seems to be a strong suit of David's and something he did often. Uh, we don't actually have to look very far. We don't have to uh, look very deeply to find other examples. And just to kind of show you all of that, uh, where you have your Bibles open to chapter 4, you can look right over at chapter 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Flip over the page in my Bible, chapter 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Chapter 7. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Chapter 10, why, O Lord, do you stand in awe? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? Chapter 12, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. Chapter 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 16, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 17, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. These are the first few psalms of 150 that David wrote, and we see immediately that oftentimes David's first response to what is going on in his life is to cry out confidently to the Lord, to remind the Lord, to remind himself of the many times that David's prayers have been answered, and to plea again with God, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. When in distress, prayer should be our first item of action. How often do you find yourself in a difficult season and wonder why God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it? Well, have you prayed? And if you haven't, why not? Do you feel like your situation is, is too big for God to handle? Are you lacking faith in God's ability to, in, in God's sovereignty? Or do you think it's, you know, too small for him to actually care about? An Australian pastor from the early 1900s named J. Sidlow Baxter says this, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Our prayers go up to God, the God who hears, and we can confidently and boldly go before him and know that our prayers will be answered. So Christians, why aren't you praying? Why aren't you praying? Before David does anything else, he cries out to the Lord. He acknowledges the Lord's faithfulness in the past, and we should be doing the same. So in verse 1, we have confident prayer. David is confidently putting his petitions before the Lord and expecting an answer, knowing that he will get an answer. 
As we move on to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5, David is addressing someone. And in this section of the passage, we see courageous confrontation. Verses 2 to 3 say, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. As I was first reading this passage and uh, looking forward to today, one of my first questions was, what, who is he talking to? He says, O oh, men. So the first thing we need to figure out is, who is David addressing in this passage? When he wrote this passage, who was he talking to? And I think the next two questions that he has in that sentence, in this uh, passage, can help us discover who that is. David says, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Whoever these men are, they're seeking to take David's honor, the honor that he has as king, anointed by God as king over Israel, and seeking to destroy that and turn it into shame. They're believing vain things about themselves and lies about David. That sounds like an enemy to me. Someone purposefully seeking David's harm. David's enemies are there and David confronts them and calls them out for what they are doing. In these questions, David is chiding his enemies. He's scolding them, rebuking them in what they are doing. Now, I don't, I think maybe my first reaction to reading these questions, I, I might have imagined David kind of moaning out the questions like, oh, how long are you going to keep doing this? Like, for, for crying out loud, it's getting old. Complaining about a situation. But I don't, I don't think David was doing that in this passage. I think David was boldly calling them out for their foolishness and their sin. Foolish men are running after David and impassioned against him by lies they are believing about him and their own vanity. No doubt these men probably believed themselves to be the godly ones, but they were blind to anything but their anger towards David and their desire to do him harm. Verse 3, David says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. These men were no match for David, but not because of David himself, but because he was set apart by God, and no one can prevail against God. He cries out in the first verse, O God of my righteousness, you are the one that will vindicate my right. You will defend me because you have set me apart. Now we're seeing two types of people, I think, in this passage. We're seeing the godly and we're seeing the ungodly. The godly are those that are set apart by God for himself and those that obey God. And the ungodly are those outside of God, who instead of obeying God, obey the passions of their flesh and run 
after sin. They're not just David's enemies, they're God's enemies. How do we know that they are God's enemies? Well, if we look at a couple other passages in our Bibles, in Romans and James, we can see who God describes as his enemies. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, let me read those for us. For those who live according to the flesh, according to sin, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, on sin, is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Their minds are set on the things of the flesh, set on sin, and those minds are hostile to God because they do not submit to God. They do not obey God. No, they obey sin. In James 4, verse 4, we also see how God describes his enemies. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Those that are friends of the world are enemies with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what is it that makes one an enemy of God? It's sin. Anyone that is of the world is an enemy of God. And we know that this world is in sin. We know from Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that God created this world and everything in it, including man, perfectly. But man disobeyed God and sinned, bringing the first sin into this world. The result, death. The ground was cursed because of sin, and now every man and woman born into this world is born a slave to sin. In Genesis 4, we have the well-known story of Cain and Abel, where we see the first murder in the Bible. Cain brought to the Lord a sacrifice that was unacceptable to the Lord. And his brother, Abel, brought a sacrifice that was acceptable, and God favored Abel's sacrifice. In Cain's rage and hate against his brother, he struck and killed Abel because Abel obeyed God and was blessed for it. David knows that because by faith he has believed in God and his sins have been forgiven, no evil will befall him except that which God allows. God is sovereign, and all his plans come to be. No power of sin or of man can change God's plan to any degree. In fact, we could even say these men weren't even really enemies of David at all, but enemies of God. They were pursuing David because of the honor that was bestowed upon him by God as the divinely anointed king of Israel. David's honor wasn't his own. 
He did not gain it for himself. He did not overthrow the old king by his own might and power and take the throne. God gave it to David. If we are following Christ in obedience, when opposed because of following Christ, those who appear to be our enemies are really in a struggle against God. The world sees a Christian at peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. They see them blessed with joy in God, and they hate us for it. But if we know God, we can be like David and boldly call them to repentance and rest confident that the Lord is by our side. David's enemies see that they can't prevail against David, that he has peace, he has found relief in the midst of distress, and that God has shown him grace in this difficult time. And they are angry, and they hate him for it. As David continues, he calls his enemies to consider their ways and repent. Verses 4 to 5, we read, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. What David is saying here is this. You may be angry, you may be full of hate, but don't sin in it. Go to your bed. Go to a quiet place. Be silent and ponder your wrongdoings in silence. The word angry is also translated as tremble or be agitated. Tremble and be agitated, but do not sin. Consider your sin. Be silent and listen to what the Lord has to say about it. What ability does the ungodly person have to be angry and not sin? Outside of Christ, none. An enemy of God cannot be angry without sin because his anger is pointed at everything but sin. David's enemies are angry at him. They are angry because God has chosen him. They are angry that David is escaping every trap they set for him. But the one thing they should be angry and tremble at, they cannot. And that is sin. Their own sin. The ungodly person, an enemy of God, has his mind set on the flesh, on sin, and therefore cannot be angry at sin unless he wants to be angry at himself. David is telling his enemies to be angry with themselves, to be agitated, to tremble at their sin, and to stop sinning. What about for the Christian? Does this have any implication to the one who has repented of their sin and who no longer has their mind set on the flesh but has their mind set on Christ? We see in Ephesians 4 what Paul has to say about this very verse. In chapter 4 
Paul is writing to the Ephesians. He's writing to the believers at the church that is in Ephesus. And he's urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 17, Paul's encouraging them to set aside their old sins, their old way of life, by saying this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, or as the ungodly, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Paul's reminding them, you, you have been called into Christ. Don't walk like you used to walk before. Don't walk like the ungodly of this world. They are darkened. They cannot see. They are blind to their sin and the darkness in which they walk. Paul continues to encourage them to then put off their old self, put off their old sin nature, and instead put on the new self the new creation that is in the image of Christ Jesus. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, therefore, having done this, having set those things aside, having put away falsehood, having put on the new man, he gives us these encouragements. Verse 26 Paul then quotes from Psalm 4, Be angry and do not sin. Speaking in the context of setting our sin aside, no longer walking as the ungodly of this world, but in Christ, what Paul is telling us to do is to be angry at the sin that wells up within us. We're no longer easily led by our sinful passions, against our fellow men, but our passions, our anger, is more aligned with Christ's and directed towards sin and its ugly rearing head in ourselves and in this world. On May 25th of this year, Derek Chauvin, a police officer, killed a man by the name of George Floyd by holding him down on the ground with his knee on his neck. Now Derek Chauvin was white and George Floyd was black. And what Derek Chauvin did was wrong, both by the laws of this country and by God's law. Now there are two responses we can have to a situation like this and to this specific situation and we're seeing some of these responses in our country now. We can turn this into a racial issue like the world is doing and hate Derek Chauvin, hate police officers, hate white people, hate black people. Or we can hate sin. The world will be forced to hate the people or the institutions involved because to hate the sin would be to hate themselves. The main issue here is that there is a sin 
problem. The ungodly, or the godly, excuse me, those of us that would say we are Christians and follow the Lord should be hating the sin. It was sin that killed George Floyd. A person committed the act, but it's because of sin that George Floyd has died. At this point in the text, if David's enemies have been following along and if they've taken David's advice to ponder their sin, to consider their sin, they might now be saying, what can we do? How, how can we be saved? David's response is this. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. These men were Israelites, and as such, they'd probably been doing sacrifices all of their lives. Undoubtedly, they viewed David as the one outside of God's favor. And in fact, in Psalm 3, verse 2, we hear them say, and we hear David say, Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. David's pursuers believed him to be the ungodly one and themselves the ones inside of God's favor. But David, again, he courageously confronts his enemies and he says, offer right sacrifices, implying that the sacrifices these men have been making are not the right ones. So what are these right sacrifices? And can a sinner with a mind set on the flesh offer right sacrifices? Let's look at Psalm 51. I'm going to read the first seven verses for us here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Then we look at verses 16 and 17 in the same chapter. And David talks about the right sacrifices. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What we see in verses 1 through 7 is David's humble heart broken before the Lord because of his sin. David recognizes his 
previous status as a sinner, and he humbles himself before the Lord and confesses his sin. Unless David's enemies recognize their sin and their need for God to purge them of their sin and allow him to do it, then their quest to offer right sacrifices is a futile one. A right sacrifice before God is a humble spirit of brokenness and repentance before him. The outward sacrifices of men are worth nothing in the sight of the Lord, and David calls his enemies out for it. Now, while people here in Fredericksburg, Texas, or all around this country may not offer sacrifices in the same way that the ancient Israelites uh, gave sacrifices, they still attempt, we still attempt to offer sacrifices to the Lord to gain his favor. Have you ever heard someone say that they believe they will go to heaven because they are a good person? They're offering sacrifices of good deeds so that God will allow them into heaven. Not a right sacrifice. What about going to church every Sunday? Oh, surely, surely God will overlook the fact that Monday through Saturday I yelled at my kids and lied to my boss to get out of work and left my wife to do all the work around the house and napped every day on the couch. But if I sacrifice my Sunday morning and go to church, surely he'll forgive me from those things. The Lord does not desire sacrifice, but a humble spirit before him. Right sacrifices can only be done by the one with a humble and contrite spirit, the one who recognizes that no good can come from him, and who lays his sin at the foot of the cross and says, Forgive me, Lord, for only you can wash my sins away. I trust in you. And after all of this, David rests in complete peace. Verses 6 through 8, we read, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David and his followers were not exactly in a situation that I would call the most comfortable. Uh, they were running from enemies who were actively seeking their life, living in caves, in the woods, and anywhere else they could find any shelter and safety from their enemies. And many of his followers preferred to see rather than believe that God was with them. They wanted to moan and groan for material comforts to know that God's face was shining down on them. But David will have none of this. And David instead proclaims, You, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Where does our contentment come from? Where does our joy come from? 
David's followers were not wrong in wanting to see the light of God's face. Only they were looking for it in the wrong places. David chose to find his joy and contentment in God alone. No grain or wine or physical comforts could take the place of God. Now, grain and wine was an important thing in the Israelite culture. As an agricultural society, wealth, comfort, and security would have come from an abundance of grain and wine. Knowing that their stores would last until the next year's harvest would have brought them security, happiness, and joy, and cause for celebration. But David says, no, you, God, have given me more joy than those things. And here we come to David's final verse. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Similar to verse 1, where David acknowledges that God has given him relief and distress in the past, in verse 8, David acknowledges that it is God alone that gives him safety in the night. In peace, he will lie down and sleep. Now notice that David hasn't received an answer to his prayer in verse 1. He's still waiting. When he refers to having been given relief, he's referring to past events. And in this confidence, he's reminding himself again at the end of this passage as he lays down to sleep, You alone, O Lord, will give me safety. Believer, let me remind you of what you have in Christ. You have a God that answers when you call. David believed it, and he knew it. We see the example of it in this passage. He cries out to the Lord. He recognizes God's past faithfulness. He asks again, be gracious to me, And he confidently waits for God's answer by laying down and sleeping, knowing that he has a God who answers prayer. We have a God that gives joy beyond just our worldly comforts. Remember how David said he has more joy than when others' grain and wine abounds. Isaiah 9, in prophesying about Jesus' coming, states this. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The harvest celebrations of the Israelites have nothing on the joy that comes from Christ. When they celebrate, when they shout with joy at the great harvest they've brought in, our joy, our shouts of celebration are even more when we look at Christ and what he has done for us. We also have a God that protects us and gives us peace through the dark of night. Enemies surrounding, yet we slumber in peace. If there's anyone who's listening today that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, unfortunately, this peace And joy that David talks about is out of your reach if you go for it on your own and in your own strength. Without Christ, we are left with temporary fillers, 
band-aids that we try and slap on when we feel overwhelmed. In what ways are you attempting to find joy and peace in your life right now? Maybe your grain and wine don't abound, and maybe you find yourself in a situation that is overwhelming. Are you thinking, who will show us some good? Where can we find some joy? Many lay in bed at night, struggling to sleep, stressed over their jobs or families. And unfortunately, many of these people, and maybe some of you, turn to alcohol or pornography, binge-watching Netflix, stress-eating, scrolling through social media, attempting to medicate ourselves to sleep and to avoid, if only just for one more night, the stressors of this life surrounding us. I'm sorry to report that no amount of pornography, movies, social media, or anything else will satisfy and instead contribute to the vicious cycle of stress and avoidance and stress and avoidance. Now, while I just said that you can't find this joy and peace on your own, it is yours in Christ Jesus. I encourage you to do as David encourages in this passage. Be angry and agitated at your sin. Ponder your sin and be grieved by it. And then offer the right sacrifices of a humble and broken spirit before God, confess your sins, and receive his forgiveness, and then turn from that sin. This gift of grace, of joy, of peace, can be yours in Christ Jesus as well. David, in this passage, confidently prays, confidently cries out to the Lord, recognizes the Lord's faithfulness. He courageously confronts his enemies and calls them to repentance. And even though his prayer has not been answered, he lays down to sleep in confidence that God will make him dwell in safety. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the peace and confidence that we have in you and in you alone. Lord, remind us, help us to understand that in our own strength, we have nothing. We have no ability to find peace and joy that is everlasting. Lord, bring us into your fold and into your peace, and may we sleep in peace, resting in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.